axiology presupposes metaphysics. In other words, if you have a system of values, it presupposes that you have a foundational belief system that those values are built upon. It seems obvious to us that we live in the midst of culture, but many of us would struggle to define exactly what culture is, and even more so how, as Christians, we should engage with it. In this lesson from the Christ and Culture series, join Ike Reeder, president of Birmingham Theological Seminary, as he discusses the key elements of culture and introduces us to four specific types of culture. And now, here's Ike. All right, so the last couple, last week we started looking at this question of uh, sort of what is culture, and um, the uh, questions that we're pondering, what is culture, broadly speaking, what are the Christian views on engaging culture, what is the reformed Christian view of cultural engagement, and then uh, what are some of the practical lessons on how we can engage culture as Christians. These are four questions we're answering these sort of first four weeks. So last week we started looking at, oh, go backwards. Go the other direction. There we go. Last week we started looking at just some general definitions of culture. And uh, the first we started with a quote from T.S. Eliot, the famous Christian poet, thinker, teacher from the uh, first half of the 19th or the first half of the 20th century. And, and Eliot's quote in one of his seminal works, which is called Christianity and Culture, which is a combination of two essays that he wrote and lectures that he gave, um, which is culture is sim simply is that which makes life worth living. So he starts with this point of saying this, this, these, all these broad things that give us motivation makes life worth living, right? That's motivation, that's desire, that's the passions that we have for a number of different things. And then and those things we, as we, we ascribe value to. That's what, that's what he's, we, we give value to those things. So uh, if you think about your, you can think about a number of different ways that you uh, want things, that things are out there. That, as a matter of fact, in our current society, we, we love our acronyms in our current world these days in, our, in, our, in a texting age. And we have an acronym that even sort of encapsulates a little bit of this from what we would call and we'll get to this phrase, consumer culture a little bit, which is, which is the acronym FOMO, which means what? Fear of missing out. Fear of missing out, right? This, I don't want to miss out on this thing. That means if you don't want to miss out on it, it means you're ascribing some level of value to it, right? It's a value proposition. Culture uh, gives us value propositions, in other words. It, is, it, it establishes elements of worth, all right? And then the worth is then controlled by different perceptions. In other words, if a certain group of people think that this thing is valuable, there's, if, that if those people have, uh, and you know, again, you can't talk about culture without using the word culture, so pardon me, but if they have cultural cachet, then what happens? Other people want to do that. I mean, that's our celebrity culture today a little bit, but it's not just celebrity culture, it also is a peer culture. So I'll give you a quick example, and then we'll move on from our Elliot quote. Uh, how many of you are familiar? How many of you are familiar with video games? <laughs> okay, yeah, there we go. Awesome, awesome. And uh, what's what is the most popular video game out there right now? Fortnite is the most popular video game out there right now. It's in an intense battle with PUBG for which one is the most popular battle royale game. And at E3 this past week. Every multiplayer game announced a new battle royale mode. It's the way that they play this thing. And all the kids, it's what all the kids are doing. My stepson, Wynn, who is a avid gamer, as it should not be astonishing since, since I like games too, obviously. Uh, we, uh, 
when love loves to play Fortnite. Can we can we download Fortnite? Can we play Fortnite? Sure, when you can play it. I mean, within the parameters of what we give you to be on the the PlayStation and everything else. And so he gets in to start playing Fortnite. He loves it. He's playing with his buddies, the Hatchets. They play. He's only, you know, only can be friends online with people that we know from church, basically. And you know, so he plays with them. And then he goes. And then and then he goes. To, he goes and I've got these Amazon gift cards for my birthday. Can, can I use them? Sure. What do you want to use them? I want to buy Fortnite T-shirts. No problem. I mean. That's fine. I still buy video game t-shirts myself, so that's great. If that's what you want to use your Amazon gift card for, use $40 for t-shirts and $10 for a present for your stepdads. Great. That's our rule. And so he goes and buys the Fortnite t-shirts. He gets them in the mail. And the day that he gets them in the mail, season three for Fortnite comes out. And which is great. I mean, it's like it adds all new features and all new stuff to it and everything else. And 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 he goes to school and he's wearing his Fortnite T-shirt and he comes home, and and he, and he and he gets his you know 20 minutes to watch a TV show or play a video game for a few minutes when he gets home from school just to kind of decompress a little bit before he goes and does his homework for seven hours, and then he goes uh, and he and he goes in and he logs in to, he goes in and he boots up uh, Skyrim to play and I'm like, what are you doing? You not playing Fortnite? And he goes. No, I don't like season four or season three. And I was like, well, it literally just came out this morning. Like, how do you not like it? He said, the, the, uh, well, it's just got some stuff that I just don't think is real. I said, well, how do you know that? And he goes, I was just, the kids, the other kids at school said it's not fun. So I don't want to play it. Any, I'm just, I'm just going to play Skyrim. And I was like, you just spent $50 on Fortnite t-shirt and everything else. He goes, yeah, they're, they're fine. I probably, probably won't wear them. You know, and it, immediately his perception of what is valuable changed because five cool kids at school said that season three from Fortnite is no good. And that seems like a silly example, but you can extrapolate that out to our business world. And if you follow the way, the trajectories of how we talk about our jobs and our lives and our values, we see that, that peer influence and in culture is significant. And it's not just that it's peer influence, it's not just talking about peer pressure like you did when you were in seventh grade, you know, don't let other people tell you what to do. It's that it's that we, we there are different ways that value is ascribed to things and ideas that then we we then go, well, if this many people think of maybe I should start thinking about it. And we're gonna look at how that develops a little bit. And that's part of what Elliot's drawing out there is he says it's simply that which makes life worth living. That's not a moral statement. That's not a uh, um, uh, that's not a right or wrong statement. It's just saying that for many people cultures now the next part of the quote, he, he gets into, like, should it be a, a, a good thing or a bad thing? Is that a culture we want to, then you have to ask, start asking questions like, is that a culture we want to preserve or not? Is the next question that then would arise from that. And so he says, because cultures fall apart. I mean, we know there are, that history is littered with the bones of variety of cultures, okay? So he says, and it's what justifies other peoples and other generations insane when they contemplate the remains and influence of an extinct civilization. So looking back, when they contemplate that civilization, that it was worthwhile for that civilization to have existed. And we do make those judgments. That civilization was a good civilization. It was a bad civilization. We're not just talking about, like, its progress or its outcomes. We're talking about its constitution. 
And I don't mean like the Constitution of the United States. I mean, what, what makes up that culture, okay? So that's the quote from T.S. Eliot. And then we have Hans Ruckmacher, who's a little bit more recent, brilliant art professor, Christian, studied with Francis Schaeffer, was kind of the, the he even he studied with Schaeffer and then went on for a PhD and really kind of influenced Schaeffer in the world of art more. Uh, so if you're a Schaeffer fan, you definitely want to look up some Hans Ruckmacher stuff and read him. He's brilliant, fascinating, and very readable. He's very good. He says, life should be one and culture is simply the creation of life's forms. So life should be one. That is, life should be what? What does that mean, life should be one? I'm going to have a unified worldview. Yeah, unified. unified well, the, that, the worldview and its expressions, in other words, what you do from that worldview, how you behave, how you act, what you consume, what you create, should be one. There's, it should be a connective tissue where one thing is influencing the other. And there are two ways to look at this, which is that, one, that we should always be striving for more consistency between the foundation core of what we believe and the expressions of that belief, whether it's in the, the choices we make with our families, with our wallets, with our time, with our energy, with our efforts, or, or what, what have you. But he also uses the word should instead of life shall be one, because there's often, as humans, a disconnect. Now, philosophers argue with whether it's a real disconnect or whether or that it's revealing something deeper about your worldview. And I think I shared with you the, the old philosophical uh, phrase last time, about two weeks ago, which is that uh, my, my philosophy professor in college, my first intro to philosophy class wrote on the board. And he said, did I share that with you guys last time? He wrote it on the, my first philosophy class. I was a philosophy minor in college, my first philosophy class with Dr. Reg McClellan at Covenant College. He sat us down and on the board he wrote, he wrote this, this phrase up there. Now, obviously, like the, we have a few, few folks in here that uh, grew up in the in digital technology age, but for those of us that grew up in the non-digital age, when a professor wrote something on the board, you, there was no way you could look it up. And he said, if anyone can define this, this, this phrase for me right now, you have an A in introduction to philosophy, period. You don't have to do a single, you have to stay, but you don't have to do a single assignment. And he wrote on the board, axiology presupposes metaphysics. <laughs> Needless to say, we were a bunch of 18-year-olds um, who did, we really didn't even know what we were getting into, major, you know, minoring or majoring in philosophy. And so we all looked at him with blank stares. And he said, by the end of the semester, you will be able to define that phrase. And now you can just Google it and find out what it means. But what it basically means, axiology is, is the ph philosophical term for our value structure. Presuppose means to exist beforehand, something that exists beforehand. And metaphysics is just the fancy word for worldview. Okay, axiology presupposes metaphysics. In other words, if you have a system of values, it presupposes that you have a foundational belief system that those values are built upon. Now, extrapolate that out, and it means that what you value tells people what you believe. That's what that means. That's that principle of philosophy. So the constant discussion in philosophy is does that mean that these values are set and my beliefs are set or is there an evolutionary process to that as well and we know that by the holy spirit there is an evolutionary process to that but we also know that we do want to see that oneness and as believers we even more want to see that oneness 
because I'm mean, not necessarily even more, maybe non-believers really want to see that oneness too, a full expression of what they believe acted out in the world around them. But we want to see the oneness because what we want to see is, what we want is people to see a value structure that reflects Christ because Christ is the foundation of our worldview. Okay, so Rookmacher very intelligently uses that word should there. Life should be one. Uh, it's a, both, a, both an observation and a challenge. Does that make sense? Life should be one is both an observation and a challenge. And culture is simply the creation of life's forms, customs, and institutions, as well as our utilization of its nature and its resources. When a farmer cultivates, and this is, that basically means like, both what we take in and what we push out are defined as culture. And culture has the number, the key word that you'll get with culture is nesting. Nesting. Culture has nested spheres. Okay? So, for instance, for those in here that are parents, you probably, when you thought about being a parent, your kids, at least on some level, you may have had really conscious discussions about this as a husband and a wife, or you may not have. But at some level, you probably thought to yourself, I want to have a family culture. We want to have certain things that are expressions of what we believe evidenced in this family. And we could give a ton of expressions or a ton of examples of that. We're not going to right now because we're going to come back to family culture in a late, at a later date as we work through this. But think about that as you're just kind of working through these ideas a little bit and, and examples of things you did with your family or your family did when you were a kid or things you've tried to do as a parent that you've wanted to be expressions of your family culture, okay? And that's important. Let me just say one thing parenthetically too here. That's really important because a lot of times we think of a family culture as evidenced by outcomes. In other words, like, uh, so, I mean, put it on the base level. We're, most of us in here are probably believers. We, I mean, generally speaking, you don't come to church and certainly probably not Sunday school if you don't have some element of going, you know, I got some identification with this Jesus Christ fellow, you know. So, uh, you know, there's, most of us in here probably that, that way. And most of us want our kids to grow up and walk in faith. And so we think if we do the right things, then what? The kids will grow up and walk in faith, right? But that's, that's and then we say, so, okay, so what family culture do we need to ensure that? We, work, we try to work backwards, and that's not a bad idea. That's, I'm not telling you that's wrong or to say, you know, well, that's in God's hands, so it doesn't really matter what you do, you know. It is in God's hands, but it does also matter what you do, and that's why we have proverbial wisdom. That's not, uh, that's not promissory wisdom. That's not in the Proverbs when it's, you know, train up a child in the way they should go, and when the old they will not depart from it. It's not to say that ev at every moment if you train up, because you're going to make mistakes, we're going to make mistakes. But more, we should be thinking about our family cultures, not as outcome-based, I want a good family culture so that my kids will become Christians, but that our family cultures should evidence oneness. We don't, we don't do it for that reason. That part is in God's hands. We do it so that it will be a complete expression of my, I want to do it with Angie and the kids, not, not because I'm afraid that as being stepkids, they will get terrible influence from the dad, and I have to counteract that influence. And I want to make sure that when they grow up, they're walking with Jesus. So we need to have family devotions every night, right? No, 
I want to do family devotions because guess what? Eventually it's going to get probably antagonistic. It's probably going to get to a point where it becomes a, um, a no, we have to do this. And you're walking away. So family devotions are going to get longer. You see what I mean? You get these, you get the post hoc ergo propter hoc, right? You get these causality fallacies. I didn't, maybe we missed a family devotion. So they're not believers. You see what I'm saying? No, it, that's not why we do it. We do it because we want an expression of our love of Christ. That's why we do it, because we want oneness between our life and our culture. See, does that make sense? So that's what Rookmacher is getting at here. And then he goes on to just simply say that when, when a farmer, when a famer cultivates, sorry, I didn't get, have time to go back and change that from last week. When a farmer cultivates, we do have famers in this society now, though, just in case you were wondering. Uh, <laughs> They're called YouTubers. Uh, when, a, when a farmer cultivates, his methods and tools are all part of the culture. The products of technology, my tools I use, those are part of culture just as much as what I'm cultivating is part of culture. Okay? When a composer writes a song, this is culture. He chooses sounds and expresses idea in creating a form whereby people can express themselves. He's trying to en encompass all of culture. Well, all of what culture, you might ask? Well, what are the elements of culture? And we're not going to talk about each one of these. And you can write them down if you want to and explore more later. But it, I mean, culture, this is big. The reason why this slide is here is to illustrate to you that culture is big. There's a lot of aspects to it. There's a lot of intersecting items and things that are happening to create cultures, both in our families, in our communities, in our churches, in our local communities, in our national communities our political communities and all these places. In other words, each one of these represents almost its own cultural sphere that each one of these others could then enact upon. If you were to do this in a graph, which I am not talented enough to do, there would be like each one of these would have like a circle and then a line connecting all of them. See, does that make sense? So you've got, I just made one circle. So then they all kind of go to, to that. Religious beliefs. Foundational in cultures. No matter what has happened in society over 5,000, 6,000, 10,000 years, 20,000 years, 25,000 years, however far back you want to go, depending on which form of creationist you are, and no matter how hard in the in the in the both the, the second half and the well in the from the mid 19th century until present, you're not going to get rid of religious beliefs. Okay, for two reasons. One is because God put them there, and two, because even atheistic beliefs have faith components to them. And so they're thus also evidencing the need for its traditions and its totems and its uh, expressions that all of them have. So religious beliefs, arts and literature, always going to be there. Why? Because we're creating the image of God. God's creative, we're creative, we'll get into that more as we go. Politics and government, because we try to find ways to control society and places and people around us. From the earliest tribes which had a patriarch to the most complex systems of constitutionalized government, we're always gonna have it. Uh, communication, economy, customs and tradition, society and class. Again, no matter how much you try to get rid of things like class, they're, they're still, it's still there. Um, We've seen those experiments worked out over the last 200 years, especially 175 years. And geography and its physical implications. The, the geography is on there, guys, because 
There's a lot of times that we want to super, geography has a significant com element of culture, okay? There's a lot of times we want to um, uh, it, uh, get rid of it. And we just want to go, well, you know, I mean, in Birmingham particularly, I mean, go to, go to Chattanooga. The river divides the city into four specific quadrants. Um, the, uh, over in Anniston, I'm working with a group of churches over there for BTS. There is a church that's on the interstate side of whatever mountain that is, and that, that's on the, the, those mountains that kind of run, you know, parallel to the interstate. And they planted a church in the valley one mountain over uh, 15 years ago, and both of them are wonderful small churches. But one of the reasons they planted the church in the valley over there is because it's a, it's a different culture. There are different people live over there. Different people live closer to the interstate and farther to the interstate and they wanted them to come over but he also had to drive all the way around the mountain it was a 45 minute drive around the mountain to get there well they just finished the overpass that's going over the mountain literally now the churches are three minutes apart from one another and it's too and now they're and so they're going do we just combine churches are the cultures going to change are they what you just bypass the geographic feature it's a very interesting concept so they're really trying to dig into what's the best solution for us here these are all significant elements of culture that we have to deal with and when we talk about it there's 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 about seven or eight of these but these are the four you need to be aware of when you start talking about culture okay these are the four main ones you should be aware of and I know this is all preliminary stuff and I know it's not you know I'm, I'm, I'm tying our faith into it a little bit and I know it's not a, uh, a court, you know Bible study per se in that sense but these are if you're going to talk about culture these are some sort of foundational terms that are important or else we just kind of revert to a um, or, or we just end up reverting to a, uh, a sort of reductionism just sort of well just go out and do nice things to people and you should be fine right which is which is certainly foundationally true but there's also ways that your nice thing may not be a nice thing. And those, so, uh, you know, we want to think about the different elements of culture. So uh, sociologists, we get a lot of this from um, soci sociologists, theorists, and, um, and from philosophers is where we get a lot of this, this from. These, those are the two kind of groups, and, and literature does some and all those things. But really, sociologists and philosophers are the ones that really think about this stuff deeply. So that's where a lot of this is coming from. But these four are the t different kinds of culture that we look at. Mass culture, pop culture, high culture, and folk culture. The reason why I'm giving you these four is because in any given culture, broadly, one of these four is normally prioritized. And it's important to sort of know what which ones, I mean, if you think about it, just, I mean, they're pretty self-definitive here. I mean, you can probably figure out what they are. We're going to shoot through some definitions real fast. But, I mean, which one, sorry, alarm, which one, go off, there you go, which one uh, does our culture prioritize, okay? I mean, that's a good question for you to start asking. So, very quickly. Mass culture is what? These are, these are a little bit longer definitions, so you may not want to try to jot them down. Maybe just kind of a free, maybe a, a, a reduced version of these definitions. But mass culture, we often can sometimes refer to as consumer culture or media culture. Now, the media culture component, that's more of a new designation that comes together, mass culture and media culture. But it can be defined as a culture where social status, values, and activities are centered on the acts of consumption. What are you taking in? What are you watching? What are you buying? All those things that are coming in. The act of buying goods and services. 
This is our you and 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 I when I was with YBL, what question that I used to ask all small groups when we started talking about discipleship is I would say these were young guys in their twenties and early thirties and stuff, and I would say, all right, so just curious, Iron Driver CrossFit, <laughs> and I mean it's in that room you these smiles break out in their faces be like i yeah i'm iron tribe you know like never set foot in a crossfit gym you know i mean uh and you know it's it's this it's this sort of mentality that breeds this uh, this is who i'm becoming see what all those things that we start to consume we start to become identifiers all right so um whole foods a fresh market Pub Publix or Winn-Dixie? Aldi's? That just said something about you, Mac. I'm just telling you. I'll bring my own shopping cart, thank you very much. Trader Joe's? Who goes on Saturday to barn to, up to the summit? To, to, you know, we, all these, these are things we start to identify. What, what happens is, I mean, they're fun and they're fine. You decide where you want to grocery shop. Nobody's saying don't decide where you want to grocery shop. But... What we do is we start to identify. And then as people start to go to one, you go more often, and what happens? Well, if the grocery store is a good, I used to run retail stores. If it's a good store, what do they do? They make you feel welcome, they remember your name. You start to meet other people, and all of a sudden, you don't want to go to any other grocery store. We developed, I mean, remember when, when, uh, when I was running the GameStop over on 280, I mean, Jim would come in and be like, can you call my mom and tell her it's okay for me to play this game? You know. <laughs> hey, Mary Claire, how you doing? It's not okay for him to play this game. You know. <laughs> we developed, we, we actually wanted to build, we consciously worked at building an identity at being the family GameStop. We would remember families. We would talk to them. We'd ask about their kids. We would tell them, oh, that's not a good, but I got three great suggestions instead, or, you know, those kinds of things. We built an identity. Mass culture builds identities. And what it does in building those identities is it, it puts you in a position of becoming a part of that identity, okay? None of that saying is necessarily bad, all right, per se. It's, it's just, it's simply how they, it's how it functions. All right, so mass culture does that. Can I ask a question? Yes. Comment. No questions. Based, no questions. Just Based kidding. on the four cultures, this one seems to be in that description uh, can be measured objectively. Can, well, that's. To, you know, what are they buying? Yes, Joel, that's actually a really great point. So some elements. This is really fun. If you want to put these down, if, you, if you're taking notes or snap a picture, then um, go for it. Because this is really interesting. This is, when mass culture is taught in university settings, this is the acronym that's used to sort of remind students of the elements of mass culture, that it tends to be created. These are sort of tends to be, is the phrase that would be in front of each one of these, created by commercial organizations. All right, All these factors are identifiable, like exactly what you just said associated with industrial societies because you can mass produce things, right? Industrial doesn't mean like everything's factories, it just means a society that has elements of mass production. Manufactured, in other words, there's somebody sitting in a room going, what would be really good, okay? It's manufactured, it's, it, there's, a thought, there's a process behind the doing of it. Passive, and passive means that they just say, oh, no, this is just good for your life. No, nope, we're not trying to force anything on you, okay? That's what passive means. And tends to be a profit-based, all right? And, and now, all these things from here down, 
It's really, it's really fascinating. You, folks, I cannot express how much these, I, I, again, we're getting to the biblical component of this, but I cannot express how much of these are going to come back as you start thinking about the way Christians are engaging culture today and the way that thinkers and philosophers are controlling this discussion at a university level. I mean, that used to be my world. I mean, I've told you guys that before. I used to be a professor at universities, and I guess it still is my world since I'm the president of a seminary, so probably should not <laughs> divorce myself from that from when I was out in the business world. But these are all basically, these basically one, two, the first, Camp P is essentially amoral. Right? They're just, it's, they're just observations of, con, of a consistent sort of expression of what that looks like. But it's, it doesn't stop at Camp P. It stops at I. That these are also inauthentic cultures. And if I can just make a quick observation here, one of the significant things, I mean, I mean what, this, is, this, is, this is part of the culture that most of our children get engaged in initially. They tend to break from it, oftentimes, to go find their own culture that's apart from mass culture, because I don't want to be mass identified. The best example of this in film that I can give you, which, which I do not recommend because there's tons of bad language and you know, drugs in it and all that kind of stuff, but from 1986, the John Hughes film, The Breakfast Club. Has anyone seen that? That is a, it is a great movie, I know. It's like, it's amazing. I'm gonna part, start playing some Simply Red right when we're walking out of class today. Uh, the, uh, but this is, but it's judged on a university level as, I mean, on a philosophical level, but that, because it's mass produced, it makes it inauthentic. Does that make sense? See what, see what I'm saying? So that's that culture. Let me just, we, we uh, man, uh, there's never enough time. I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> Pop culture, real quick. Our friend Shia LaBeouf up there. I'm not famous anymore. Uh, popular culture refers to the pattern of cultural experience and attitudes that exist in mainstream society. It is aimed at ensuring that all forms of society can access it. And while some do see pop culture as harmful and shallow, this is the key, this is the reason why I wanted to share this phrase with you, speci others specifically in our postmodern uh, 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 um, uh, academic structure Pop culture is just as valid and as worthwhile as high culture. So when I was a literature, when I was doing my graduate degree in literature, my master of arts in literature, you had to have a, 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 um, a hermeneutical sort of interpretive theory. You had to have a, um, a time period that you studied. And then you also, and, and a um, sort of time period location. And then you also had to have a pop culture area of study, which is what I started writing about video games, because it was that's where the literaturists were writing about video games and television and movies and all this stuff as just as valid of critical examination and assessment as a Shakespearean play or the Odyssey or whatever. That's a relatively, the reason why I bring this up is because this is a hugely recent phenomenon. The study of pop culture, popular culture. Now, pop culture you could see as an expression of mass culture, but this is a hugely recent phenomenon. And and just just I know it's 10:30. Give me one second. High culture. We're all familiar with high culture. High culture is what most of us think of when we think of being cultured. It's the arts, the great literature, the great works, the great books. All right. High culture is generally what we what we think of as culture. As you can tell from the two previous slides and the next slide I'm going to show you as we finish, this is the culture 
that we are specifically reactionary against in our current culture. Okay, so you probably figure that out on your own, but let me just say it real quick because we're because we're getting down. I will I will shoot these slides to Joel and you can email them out to everybody. How's that sound? Okay, and then that way you can can get to them. Lastly, is folk culture. That this is part of the reason why this is here is because folk culture is now what's that first word? Authentic. Okay, folk culture. This doesn't not, not necessarily that does. It kind of means Mumford and Sons. <laughs> but here's the deal. This is where this, this becomes so fascinating as we're trying to dissect these problems. It kind of means Mumford and Sons, but Mumford and Sons is produced for, and for those of you who don't know, they're a band, and they kind of take elements of folk and rock, and they, they put it together with a twangy sound and a banjo, and you're like, I could hear that if I was just up at a tavern in the Appalachians, you know, sort of thing, except for they're British. And, um, and then they, and then they uh, um, but then they sell like seven million records. Right, and the reason they sell seven million records is because what they've done is they tapped into the created by ordinary people, associated with active participation, rooted in the experiences of ordinary people in geography, associated with pre-industrial societies, techniques, and traditional. That's not traditional like traditional values. That's traditional like preserving the traditions of a of a of a geographic region. That's considered authentic. One word for you, Etsy. <laughs> Are online. This is and, and 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 again, it's not bad. Like it actually gives a lot of capital opportunities, right? But it's identified as being the authentic expression of culture. But then it's going to get. But if it's authentic and it sells, then it's going to get what? Incorporated into mass culture, consumer culture. See what I mean? These cult. That's why. The, that's why we say these cultures have this entangled web. That as Christians, we start to engage and becomes significantly difficult for us to look at. So this is what, this is creating, creating. This is, uh, so out of time. All right, so this is the thing you need to do, all right? Man, I get behind. Angie would be so mad at me right now. We have, as Christians, a, a foundational responsibility engaged in culture. So what I want you to do is I want you to, re you got to figure out though, what's the relationship between the old covenant and the new covenant? By the way, this is imperative for a whole bunch of reasons. If anyone in here is a fan of our good friend over in Atlanta by the name of Andy Stanley, who's a pastor at North Point Community Church, Charles Stanley's son, making the rounds recently was a video clip from something he preached about three weeks ago, about a month ago, in which he said, we as Christians need to unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. Now, by the way, nothing against my Baptist brothers and sisters in Christ. That is simply a logical outworking of dispensationalism. Okay, It's just a logical outworking of that. No, I don't know any conservative or, or orthodox, if you will, Baptist that take it that far. But it, it is a logical outworking of it. Okay, And he called for the need to unhitch those things. Well, there's a problem there because a number of problems, both we're covenantal theologians in the PCA, and so, but we gotta figure out, because the cultural mandate is where? Genesis. It's in Genesis. And then we get another mandate in Matthew called the Great Commission. Commission. And we gotta figure out, do those two things relate to one another? And how, and what's our responsibility as believers to do that? as we start to d engage in mass and popular and high 
and folk cultures. And we look at those things. And the key text is Matthew 5, 17 through 20. And, and the entire book of Hebrews as well. But just focus on Matthew 5, 17 through 20. So that's where we're going to start next week. We're going to dig into Matthew 5, this part, this the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and the cultural mandate and the Great Commission. Uh, and then we're going to look at those uh, relationships, that the way that Christians have sort of interpreted that call to engagement over the years. All right, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the time you've given us together today. Lord, um, the, uh, man, I, Lord, I, this is such a big topic and I'm so inadequate and I pray that the, uh, at least these initial definitions and background that we tried to cover today as quickly as possible will be relevant and um, not frustrating for people. Uh, but Lord, in anticipation of looking at how you've called us to engage all those groups and arenas, help us to do it with passion, uh, with a desire to see people come to Christ and with a love for one another that is just um, unstoppable, uh, that we desire to be in those relationships because uh, foundationally, no matter what we believe, they, lives are changed one-on-one. -on -one. And, uh, and Lord, we, but we also want to know how to use the culture to the advantage of the kingdom. So give us some wisdom as we continue to talk about these issues and topics, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.